Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kylan, friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Adam Johnson of the Citations Needed podcast. It's a really good podcast. You guys should definitely check it out. Uh, we're going to be talking to him about Israel, Palestine, what's happening in Gaza right now. Um, he's written a number of pieces. I think one was focused on the media. Now he's got one focused on basically the Weasley bullshit where politicians are dancing around saying we need a ceasefire. And they're saying we need a humanitarian pause. We need like all these like this weird Orwellian language to avoid saying like, hey, stop bombing innocent people. Uh, and there's a lot of that going on. And so he wrote an article on that. We're going to talk to him about uh, that and everything around the conflict. Um, but before we get into that, Crystal, there's uh, a few things to talk about. So let's start with this one here. Um, this video that you're watching now is dropping on Friday, but I believe it was on Wednesday night yeah. that there was a horrific mass shooting in Maine. And um, the guy's name is Robert Card. He's the suspect in the shooting. Uh, as of the recording of this segment right now, there's a manhunt ongoing for him. I, by the time you see this, maybe he's caught. I don't know, 50-50 proposition, but uh, they're currently looking for him and doing a manhunt right now. Now, I've seen numbers all over the place in terms of uh, the, the death count. Um, the one that I'm looking at right now in this article, I think this, this is going to go up, but they say uh, at least 18 people dead and then... I saw at least 16 and as many as 22 is the no is numbers that I saw from the local news. But every every outlet I look at has a slightly different number. Yeah, so they so just haven't confirmed. This is dozen, CNN. Dozens more injured. This is CNN. 18 people killed, 13 injured. My guess is the death number is going to go up, unfortunately. Um, and it was, uh, you know, this guy went on a rampage, man. He went into a bowling alley. He went to like three different places. He was just like casually going around and gunning down everybody in sight. So, I mean, I'm just learning this fact now, but they say one of the places he went to go shoot up was the bowling alley, and it happened during a children's bowling league. I saw that. Oh, that's it's just absolutely horrific. He was using an AR-15 rifle. And um, so th there's some things about this shooting that are just absolutely maddening. So he actually was a trained firearms instructor in the U.S. Army Reserve. And he was also recently released from a mental health facility. Right. And he had been having serious mental health issues for, for a long time. He said he had been hearing voices. And one report I read said that he had threatened to uh, shoot up a military base. I mean, this is like the classic, how the fuck is this guy allowed to have a gun? Right. How's he allowed to be a firearms instructor? How's he allowed to have a gun? This is like literally patient zero should not have a like, gun. He literally came to you and was like, I am going to commit mass atrocities. And it's like, here you go. And we see this go all the time with a lot of the school shootings. We see this all the time. You have these people who are like, I'm going to shoot up the school. And then they go and shoot up the school. And people are like, yeah, Dave was talking about shooting up the school all the time. It's like, how does this happen? So there's also a political angle to this as well. Um, this guy was big into... Right-wing politics, you know, people were scrolling through. They found his Twitter account. They were scrolling through he, Tucker Carlson, Donald Trump Jr., Dinesh D'Souza, um, Jordan Peterson. He was, you know, he liked a lot of the online stuff. Apparently, he was obsessed with the trans issue. Okay. Um, now, as the shooting was still ongoing, you had Fox News went out there and did what they normally do. And remember, this is during the rampage. Look at what Newt Gingrich said on Fox News. Watch. Newt Gingrich is with us. As you can see, Mr. Speaker, once again, 
We have a deadly shooting across the country. It seems like the number of fatalities is going up rather quickly here. Uh, news is a bit sketchy. Your reaction to the initial reports here? Well, I mean, first of all, it's horrible. Yep. And I think that we're going to have to really think through a better method of protecting people. Uh, <clears throat> frankly, in kind states that have uh, concealed carry and other permits, constitutional carry permits, you have a much more rapid response to these kind of people who are crazy. Uh, and uh, we have no idea what this person's motivation was, but I think we have to assume as we move forward that people, and by the way, this also applies to what happened in Israel uh, when Hamas attacked. Uh, we have to have a greater ability for our citizens to protect themselves because it's clear the law enforcement comes in after uh, the massacre, uh, but the law enforcement's almost never there to stop the massacre. Uh, this has been true in Europe. It's been true here. Uh, it's been true in Israel. So I think we have to think about a whole new strategy because these kind of people are extraordinarily dangerous, are willing to kill others, have no sense of decency. And frankly, you have to stop them as early as possible to minimize the loss of individual lives. You know, 100 percent. Now, Sean Hannity goes on to point out uh, in those situations, I'm prepared because I do martial arts. Oh, my God. Um, so and by the way, Newt Gingrich is getting his wish, his wish in the West Bank in particular. The Israeli government was handing out uh, weapons to illegal ultra orthodox Israeli settlers. People with the documented history of violence and bulldozing Palestinian villages to the ground and stealing their land. They just armed those guys. So you're going to get your wish. You know, you're all good, Newt. But Congratulations, Newt. So I mean, here's, is, the, here's the other thing. Maine is not some like, they do not have strict gun laws. So can I tell you, I have them right here. Okay. You ready for this? Go, yeah, go ahead. So Maine does not require background checks on all gun sales. They do not have a red flag law, which could have been everything in right. this case. Right. They do not prevent domestic abusers from accessing guns. Cool. They do not ban assault weapons. They cool. do not limit magazine capacity. They do not require concealed carry permits. That's they wild. do not restrict open carry. And they don't have a waiting period either to purchase a gun. So, homie, this is your your utopia when it comes to gun laws. This is what you want. And this still happened. So I just like... When, how can you look at a story where a guy with documented severe mental health issues does this and your reaction is like more guns? It's it is normally what they do. Normally, their move is just like, oh, let's not have the political conversation. The body's right. How dare you politicize? It. How dare you? This is so undid. This is so outrageous that you would politicize this and talk about gun, la uh, gun laws in the wake of this mass tragedy. And they just push the conversation off until something else pops into the news and the heat dies down. That's the normal strategy. This is a new bold approach which is while the thing is ongoing, rather than doing the thoughts and prayers and we'll talk about the politics later bullshit, they're actively like, you know what would have helped this mass shooting situation if we flooded the zone with even more guns? I mean, is there any country that has more weapons per capita than, than no. we do? Nope. And so the idea that like even more guns is going to make us a less violent place, it's just insane. It's it's amazing that they're able to get away with this stuff, even on a propaganda outlet like Fox News. It's just it's just factually not true. It's just factually they're just factually wrong. And by the way, I'm a moderate on the issue of guns. 
I'm a moderate on the issue. I'm not I don't want to like take, take away everybody. everybody's guns or whatever. But the fact remains the 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 landscape is very straightforward. The bottom line is the US US has more guns than any other developed country. And we also have the most mass shootings and the highest gun death rate. That's not a coincidence. And they like to they like to try to make this weird counterintuitive jujitsu point of actually more guns equals more peace. If that was the case, we would already be the most peaceful country with the fewest mass shootings. And we have the most correct. correct. Like Japan is very strict on guns. They have next to no mass shootings. Australia, same thing. They have next to no mass shootings. Now, you could say, hey, I'm willing to sacrifice in the sense that I'll have a couple mass shootings a year for freedom to let everybody have guns. But that's an honest argument. That's not the same argument as just saying actually more guns equals more peace. That is just factually wrong. I need people to stop trying to say stupid things that are easily debunkable. Yeah. Well, the other thing they'll always go in the direction of is like, oh, mental health. We need to talk more. It's like, about okay, let's mental do universal health. mental health treatment. Right. I'm for that. They're not, not actually for it. They're not interested in that. And then the other piece is like, you know, all countries have citizens who struggle with mental health issues, but they don't right. all have this epidemic of mass shootings. Yep. Gee, I wonder what's different about the U.S. Yep. versus the entire rest of the world. So, outrage. I mean, it's really stunning that he's able to articulate these particular words in the midst of a mass shooting tragedy, Let it, yet another one um, in what is, you know, just like you can't even keep, keep track of how many times no. things are happening. That's in the right. US. That's right. All right. So so let's move on to something uh, a little bit lighter here. Um, this video that you're about to see, this girl went viral on TikTok, TikTok and apparently she's talking about what life is like in the real world, so to speak. Okay. You know, you leave school, you go get a job. It's a nine to five job. Yeah. And uh, she posted this video. I conversation about this, but I haven't actually watched it. There's been it a lot yet, of debate so. about it online. Uh, you know, there's, uh, I would say the older contingent is like, shut up. Like, yeah, we all deal with it. Suck it up. Like, suck it up, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But then a lot of people came uh, riding to the rescue and they were like, you know, she's right. Okay, so let's watch. And then I'm curious to get your thoughts on okay. it. Okay. I know I'm probably just being so dramatic and annoying. But this is my first job, like my first nine to five job after college and I'm in person and I'm commuting in the city and it takes me fucking forever to get there. There's no way I'm going to be able to afford living in the city right now. So that's off the table, like fucking duh. If I was able to walk to work and it'd be fine, but I'm not. So it literally takes me like I leave here, like I get on the train at 730 and I don't get home till like 615 earliest. And then like I don't have time to do anything. I don't I want to shower eat my dinner and go to sleep. I don't have time or energy to cook my dinner either. Like, I don't have energy to work out. Like, that's out the window. Like, I'm so upset. Oh, my God. Nothing to do with my job at all. But just, like, the 9 to 5 schedule in general is crazy. Being in the office 9 to 5, like, if it was remote, you get off at 5 and you're home and everything's fine. But, like, I'm not home. It takes me long to get home and, like, like people that drive to the office like it doesn't you don't get off at five and I know it could be worse I know I could be working longer but like I literally get off it's pitch black like I don't have energy how do you have friends like how do you have time to like meet like a guy I don't know like how do you have time for like dating like I don't have time for anything and I'm like so stressed out and I'm also getting my period so that's why I'm all emotional but like am I so dramatic it's fine um I mean I don't say anything I really feel for that girl. 
I really feel for that girl because she, and also she acknowledges that it could be a lot worse. She's not saying like I. And have she's to like, go am bad. I being dramatic? Am I wrong? Like yeah. she's genuinely asking. Yeah. But you know what? I mean, I I remember what it was like when I first started. Like I had like a corporate office job right out of college, and I remember that same feeling of like, if the, is this life? Like, I'm exhausted. I don't have time for anything. I have this long-ass commute. Even though I have my college degree and I've got my big office job, like, I have no money for anything. I have no time for anything. And so, so I actually think, you know, the people who should be mocked are the ones who just take for granted, like, oh, this is just how it is and you should suck it up and deal with it. Not the ones who are like, you know what? She's got a point. There should be work-life balance. These are legitimate concerns. You are more than just your, like, nine-to-five soulless job. The people who are going after her are the most cucked people on the entire planet. They, they're suffering from what I'd call status quo bias. Like, this is just how we do it, bro. This is just how it is. Like, yeah, you wake up, you don't think, you don't feel, you enjoy yourself, you shut up, you get your ass to work, you sit in that cubicle, you do your fucking job, you come home, you eat some dinner, you jack off, you watch a rerun of a shitty sitcom from 1997, and then you go to sleep. And that's your life, and that's it. We all deal with it. So just suck it up, stop complaining. And it's like, have you conceptualized the idea maybe we don't have to do it this way? Maybe this is not written in the laws of nature. Maybe this is not us in our, I hate to use naturalistic arguments, but in our natural state. Yeah. Maybe we should have more free time. Maybe one of the promises of a modern, industrialized, developed civilization is that we would have people who are more fulfilled and more free and can choose different paths and can do more interesting things. And, you know, it, look, there's a reason why anxiety, depression, all these things are through the fucking roof. Yeah. And this is a large reason why. It's like, yeah, you basically, you're basically signing your life away to work for a boss and like, there is no democracy at your workplace. You're just, you do what you're told. It's like a mini dictatorship. It's like a mini tyranny. And everybody acts like, you know, oh, democracy is great. Yeah, it is. Political democracy is great. But then for some reason, everybody shuts their brain off when it comes to the workplace. And it's like, there, I support uh, tyrannical dictatorship. There, right. I'm, it's like, no, I think she's right. Look, there's simple answers. There's hard, long-term answers, uh, you know, that, to address her issue. And then there's uh, shorter-term answers. The shorter-term answer is like, yeah, I mean, every study I've seen says a four-day work week, people are just as productive, if not more productive, and they get uh, more free time and they're happier, right? Like, so four-day work week is one thing you could do to try to address this problem. The longer-term uh, solutions are more like reworking the entire global economy in the yeah. sense that you have more worker-owned co-ops and people are more, uh, you know, engaged and happy while at their job. It gives them more meaning and fulfillment. Well, but, like, she's not wrong. In fact, she's 100% right, and people who are going after her are so freaking cucked by the system that they're yeah. pathetic. They're the pathetic ones. And I think partly the fact that you had this remote work or hybrid work revolution, because she actually mentions that. She's like, if I was working remote and I'm done at five, like, and then I have time. I can do, I can go to the gym. I can have friends. I can go on to dinner. I can like have somewhat of a life outside of just this job. I think the fact that you had so many things turned upside down by the pandemic has created this space, especially among young people, to question like, oh, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. So that was one thing that struck me. Another thing that struck me that is very concrete is she talks about like, there's no way I could afford to live in the city. Because she's like, if mm, I could just walk to work, it'd right. be fine. You know, this commute is killing me. And I don't get it. By the time I get home, I'm completely exhausted, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, 
the housing has never been less affordable in this country than it is right now. And that is a real crisis that affects absolutely everyone. So, I mean, I actually I think it's very healthy, in fact, for people to be questioning, like, does life have to be this way? Is this really what my entire adult life is now going to look like? Do I have to resign myself to this endless future where I just feel exhausted and have no room or space or life for anything outside of this job? I actually think that that is incredibly healthy. And uh, final point I'll make here is that Internet Hippo uh, responded to this video on Twitter and was like, she should unironically run for Congress. <laughs> Because maybe she'll actually try to do something to improve people's lives. Yeah. You know, I don't like it when people resign themselves to, yeah, everything just sucks all the time. Like, no, we could actually do something to change that. Mm -hmm. And it's it's good to do that. And you're not like weak or sad or whatever. If you're unhappy with the status quo, you should be unhappy with the status quo. And, you know, we didn't always have this particular viewpoint in the U.S. It used to be that one of the like sort of collective goals, the idea of of progress and additional prosperity is that people would have more leisure time and they'd be able right. to take vacation and be able to have more time and space for ourselves. And I don't know, at some point with like, I don't know if it was neoliberalism or where it happened, but that just got kicked out the window and it's like, no, it's all about the grind set and you just need to work and your whole life is your job and that's what it's all yeah, about. And by the way, if you want to be one of those hustlers who, like, by all means, go ahead, but not everybody's like that and they shouldn't like be forced to be like that in order to pay the bills and keep the freaking lights on in not wanting of to course. make your job your whole entire of course life. and a lot of people who go down that path the hyper capitalistic you know materialism yeah, consumerist types they seem sort of hollow and empty and vapid yeah right i mean i'm not judging you if you like that and that's your thing and you're fine by all means god bless but don't like look down at other people because they want to have a life outside of their fucking economic pursuits what a joke all right, so now let's end on this story, Crystal. You're going to enjoy this one. Okay. So this is, and shout out to Colvin in the control room. He brought this to our attention. That's right. Uh, this morning, and I had seen uh, Stephen A. Smith talk about this a couple of days ago, but there's this this list, this survey that went viral where um, this woman uh, brought it up on TikTok and talked about it, but it's from a survey where they ask women about, you know, first date places to go. Right. Mm -hmm. And what's acceptable, what's unacceptable. And so I have the list here of what is it, 20 things? No, it's more than that. Jesus, 28 things that are the definite no goes for a first date. Okay. Okay. And I want to get your reaction to this because I have some pretty strong feelings on this. Okay. 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 First one Cheesecake Factory. This woman says, and in the survey, they said, don't take me to Cheesecake Factory on a first date. So is this supposed to be, this is the worst place you could possibly take me is Cheesecake Factory? Um, well, Colvin was sort of implying that the list is in the order of like the number one thing is like the number one place that you shouldn't take them on a date. I don't, I haven't seen that in this article here. I, I don't know if it's in any particular order. It but, seems like it. This article I'm looking at in first place is the Cheesecake Factory, followed by Applebee's. I hard disagree with the Cheesecake OD, Factory. OD, bro. I actually, to be honest with you, and maybe I'm just like not classic enough or whatever, but I actually think Cheesecake Factory is a great idea. It's for phenomenal. A first date because everyone is going to like something on that. Of menu. course. Yeah. It's not like lowbrow, like things are at. Uh, you know, not insane price point where you're going to feel uncomfortable ordering something, but they're also not at like the bottom barrel price point. So it's like a reasonable middle ground price point, actually kind of expensive for a lot of stuff. Definitely something for everyone on that menu. 
it's a perfectly nice experience. I, I actually I have the polar opposite view of Cheesecake Factory. I think it's sort of an ideal first date kind of a What place. kind of a psycho doesn't like anything at Cheesecake Factory or thinks it's like too lowbrow? What are you talking about? I don't know. Those like corn tamale appetizer things are so good. I could close my eyes and pick something on the menu at Cheesecake Factory and it's probably banging. There's a miso salmon that is quite excellent. The vanilla bean cheesecake, huge fan. You and I have personally gone on dates together to the Cheesecake Factory, which I've enjoyed very much. Yep. But also, even for, for like the first date atmosphere, I don't want something super like romantic, you know? That's like, an interesting point. It's All right, got so let me go like through the normal, rest of the list. It's like a normal, like a neutral vibe, and I feel like that's good too. So, so let me go through the rest of the list. Okay. Number two on the list, Applebee's. Yeah. So you wouldn't be cool with a first date on Applebee's. (laughs) See, my take is a little different. I wouldn't take you on a first date to Applebee's. Yeah. But I'm not going to judge a guy who would take a a girl to Applebee's on a first date. It's like, what the hell's wrong with Applebee's? I've been to some good Applebee's in my life and some bad Applebee's. The good ones are perfectly good. I mean, Applebee's, I used to. Uh, Applebee's I used to really like, like in high school on, uh, when I, I was a swimmer, you know, swim meets out of town, sometimes as a treat, I'd get to go to Applebee's with my mom and I was really into it. Applebee's has really fallen off hard though. What I would say is, and the next ones are Applebee's, Chili's, Chipotle, which that one is, that is pretty bad. If you're taking someone to Chipotle on the first date, I, I don't know what's wrong with you. And Olive Garden. Um, so Olive Garden, Applebee's, and Chili's, I feel like, are all kind of on that same level. There's also Red Lobster in here. A bunch of, like, wings places, which I also think that would not be good. Wait, so let's but, but slow hold on, down hold on. Let me, okay. let me just say, let me just say, though, for me, it depends a little bit on the context. Like, if the guy didn't have, like, I knew that finances were difficult for him and he's taking me to a place like that, then I have less of an issue with it. But I would still think that you could find somewhere that was that same price point that was a little less like just cheesy standard and not that good. Okay. So, um, Chili's, I kind of put that in the same category as Applebee's. Applebee's. I wouldn't necessarily do it. Somebody, if somebody else does it, I'm not going to judge them. Chipotle, I, it, it depends how casual your relationship is with the person. Well, hold on, hear me out. So, <laughs> like, if it's like a high school thing, like you're in high school, the person you're dating is in high okay, school, maybe and it, in you high know, school. You, so you like you, lunch break, you got 40 minutes, you're like, you want to go to Chipotle? Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. You know and also, Chipotle is not bad. Chipotle actually tastes kind of good. Um, Olive Garden. Yeah, but, I'm not surprise everybody, everybody. but not everybody likes Chipotle. That's Chipotle true. has had some issues with food safety issues as well, which gives it, you know. Knocks it down the list um, bit as well. I'm going to surprise everybody because I've never been to Olive Garden. Really? Ever. Olive Garden. It's, listen, I'm an Italian-American and it offends my people. It offends your people? I, I mean, I'm joking. Honestly, but I think you would like it. I'm sure I would like it. <laughs> the, um, the endless like soup salad and breadstick stuff. I, of these list here, Applebee's, Chili's, and Olive Garden, I probably prefer Olive Garden of those. The movies is on this list. The, six, the number six is the movies. So think do you think movie, it's not okay for a first date? I, yeah, I do because I kind of disagree with that. Because first date, you want to get to know this person. You want to talk to them, get a feel for them. I don't want to sit in some dark, quiet space next to someone I don't even know. Like, I understand that. I understand that. But that's also, just uncomfortable from the guy's perspective. A lot of guys, myself included, we feel like I'm not that interesting. Like I, you know, we could talk in the car ride on the way to the movies, which could be 30 minutes. Where you're talking, 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 and then it's like, hey, let's enjoy the movie together. And then after you talk again on the ride home or whatever, I'm like, not trying to we, be. A, we feel like I, you, I'm not that interesting. You could I'm, know about I'm me in seven seconds. I'm not trying to be in a dark space. That's fair. Too I get close that. To some guy, I don't know. I get that. I get that. Um, uh, 
your house. 100% agree on that. If a guy <laughs> takes a, a girl to his house on the first date, yeah. run for the hills, man. He is the, he's a serial killer. Um, <laughs> uh, what else do we have Can here? I, let me just, on that one, yeah, I was thinking my mom and dad, this was a very different time. Their first date was a hike. They went on a hike together. Bruh. And I'm like, Bruh. mom, Bruh. what were you? You must have been so innocent. Hell <laughs> no. Like, yeah. You're going to go with some dude out in the like mountains in the Shenandoah Valley all by yourself. No. Hell, Hell no. 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 That's, that's... This is before cell phones are anything. Many women have been <laughs> lost forever that way, yeah. unfortunately. Don't do that. Right. That would be number one on my list. Number personally. eight, any fast food chain. 100% agree. Yeah, you can't agree. just take a woman to McDonald's or something on your first date. Buffalo Wild Wings. Um, I wouldn't do it, but I'm not going to judge another guy who does it. Really? It's kind of like a step above any fast food chain, but not that much above it. Yeah, but it's so, like, also, it's so messy to eat wings. Not everybody likes wings. They don't have to order wings. They have other things on the menu. It's called Buffalo Wild Wings. So what? Like, what, you're supposed to order a salad? You can. You can, like, you go to pizza places, somebody gets pasta at a pizza place just because it's called a pizzeria. It doesn't mean no. you have to eat it. And, and it's not even good. I worked at a Buffalo Wild Wings. Don't go to a Buffalo. Wild <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, they say Wingstop too. They say Wingstop, same category as Buffalo Wild yeah. Wings. I would say Red Lobster. I have nothing wrong with taking somebody to Red Lobster on the first date. I mean those biscuits. That's what I'm saying. Like, come on, man. D D I'm sorry, but the women who did this survey are way too goddamn strict. But I mean, I kind of like listen the. All of those Applebee's, Chili's, Red Lobster, Olive Garden, they're all in the same category of like not that good food at a reasonable price point that I feel like if you you could do a lot better. It just comes off as like cheesy and unoriginal um, and cheesy, cheap and unoriginal. I'm OK with cheap. But if you're going to do cheap, at least take me somewhere that's like interesting, local, you know, like you have some connection to not the friggin. Well, the next one on the list fits. Chilies. All right. Give me, give a me buffet. A buffet? <laughs> just any buffet? There's no chain buffet. Just as a buffet. You go to a, lucky, uh, a local buffet. Uh, you're depends. just anti-buffet in depends. general i am a, i am a massive hater of buffets right so she's just anti-buffet in general my take on it i'm not a big buffet guy uh i don't know if i'd ever bring somebody to a buffet on a, on a first date but i think if a guy did it again i wouldn't necessarily it judge dep it depends that one it um, depends like if it's some local if there's some story behind it, maybe but i hop don't do it no the, the, i've, too low I've been in too many with like just not sanitary etc denny same thing don't no. do it the gym is on this list. Taking a woman to the gym. <laughs> Only if you guys are like both psycho, you know, gym rats, then maybe. But outside of that, don't do it. You're going to go church? do like a workout. Church is on the list. Yeah. Don't take somebody to church on a first date. What the hell are you talking about? Um, Did you like to do that, though? I don't know. I, Starbucks is on the list. What are your thoughts on Starbucks? I have. It, that's a fine first date. You go to Starbucks, get a coffee, chill, talk. No, I don't mind Starbucks. But if again, it's like the context of it's not really a first date. It's like, let's just like get to know each other a little bit. Let's go grab a coffee. Right. Yeah, let's go grab a drink. Let's I go grab a coffee. I would categorize that as a date, but it's interesting that you wouldn't categorize that I mean, as a I date. think it's like, it's like a step towards a date, you know? So I, I don't you. mind, I don't mind Starbucks or I wouldn't mind, you know. Ice cream dates is the next one. You wouldn't mind that either because it's the same thing. I, it's I like a semi-date. category. Yeah. Yeah. Family functions. Agree. You can't take somebody to a family function that's, on a first date. That's, that's a psycho. lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. They say, well, movie night. So Netflix, Hulu, et cetera. You can't do that because that's bringing them to your house on the first date. Yeah. So that's, don't do that either. Yeah. Somewhere that requires a long drive. Totally agree. That's psycho behavior. You can't take somebody that's on a scary. long drive somewhere for scary. their first date. Bowling. They're dead wrong. Bowling's a great first date. I actually agree with you, even though I you personally like bowling. yeah. hate bowling. Mm -hmm. 
But I think the idea of here's this thing, it's low key, like neither of us is particularly good at it, but we're just going to go and have fun and be able to chit chat and have a beer and have a hot dog. Like the idea of it, I'm down with, even though I personally hate bowling. All right. Last ones. Ready? Nightclub. Agree. Yeah. First of all, don't go to a nightclub, period. Right? Like, there's no reason to go to a nightclub ever anyway. Lady, It says ladies listed nightclubs. Mine just says nightclubs. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, oh I, it says ladies listed. Okay, I got you. Okay. I got you. Yeah. Ladies no. said nightclubs was one of the things. Not a nightclub fan in general, but like, if you're going, I, I guess maybe if you guys are both 21 years old and addicted to meth <laughs> or Molly, then go ahead. But like outside of that, no, you're going to go to a nightclub. Like, what are you, 21 permanently? Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, then we have hookah bar. Same. I feel like that's so niche that you shouldn't do it. But when I hear that, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Hookah bar, again, I think it's like context. If it's something you know that you're both into, then I actually think it's a good idea, especially if it's a nice one and it's a good vibe. And like, I could see that. I could see that. Then we have a bar just for drinks. I totally agree. That's perfectly fine. Fine. Yeah. Then we have Waffle House. Agree. Not good. Not good. And then we have sports event. This is is an interesting one to end on because I'm actually, I think it's fine. I think that's fine to take somebody on a first date. Hey, let's go to the basketball game or the hockey game or whatever. Agree. But I do think you have to have some indication that she has some interest in sports. You that's know? true. Because that is a big problem, right? When people, like, like you, they like one thing, just force it on the other person. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It would be like the woman being like, we're going to go to the ballet and I really don't give a shit if you like it or not. You're right. going to sit yeah. through it, mm-hmm. you know? And so you would, if she gave any sort of indication that she was into basketball, she's into hockey, she's into soccer, whatever, then I think it's a great idea, actually. But if there's no indication or no interest and you don't even check in to see like, hey, what do you think of this? Then it would be bad. All right. And so the final point I'll make is this. Where the hell is it okay to take a woman on a first date to? Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> In well, my book. <laughs> so number one, no, but I agree with you. But it, like, there's no place left after you go through everything on the list. What is left? Like a local Italian restaurant run by an 84-year-old grandma that, who makes some banging-ass pasta? Yeah, like, that'd be good. There's only three of those in the whole country. Okay, well, I'm thinking about our little small town, right? And even in our little small town. Arby's. <laughs> no, I <laughs> think, you know, there's the King's Pizza, which is not fancy. Bro, why are you doxing our per- exact not- location? Jesus Christ. People know we live in King George. Oh, they already know that. <laughs> King's Pizza, which I have is a gun. lovely. Don't show which up. Which is family I have a gun. owned, <laughs> which is reasonably priced. And the food is good. And I w- would find it charming because it's like thoughtful. It's local. It's thoughtful. It's family owned. You know, it doesn't have to be expensive, but like, yeah, something, something like that, something that shows a little bit of thought, a little bit of creativity that has, you know, decent energy that isn't just cookie cutter, I think is probably the the ideal, right? Now, I wouldn't judge super harshly most of these places. On, some of them I would, but, you know, as long as my physical safety isn't threatened by you, like taking me on a hike or like on some long drive or to your house or whatever, then I'm okay with it. But um, yeah, that's my, those are my thoughts. All right. Well, there you guys have it. Uh, and without further ado, we're going to change gears here and get super serious, unfortunately. But uh, here's Adam Johnson. Welcome, Adam Johnson of the Citations Needed podcast. We appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. 
Our pleasure, our pleasure. So uh, before I ask a question, I just want to give everybody a little bit of an update on the specifics as of this moment. I should point out to everybody, this is being recorded on Thursday and this drops on Friday. So by the time that this drops, these numbers will even be different. But as of right now, we know that there's 7,028 people who have been killed in Gaza, including 2,913 children. NPR just released an article Uh, titled Israel conducts its biggest raid yet into Gaza where fuel levels are critically low. And they go on to explain that now, uh, you know, butchers have nowhere to put their meat. Their meat is going bad. Um, The the remaining bakeries in Gaza have been bombed and are not functioning anymore. Even the UN doesn't have fuel uh, for their shelters. Hospitals don't have fuel where you have surgeons who are, uh, you know, doing surgeries with literally little flashlights. And they go on to say that um, in the midst of all this, Israel just conducted its largest uh, raid, its air raid. And I've now seen multiple days in a row, there's been headlines of like, Israel does its largest air raid. And then the next day, it's like, Israel does its largest air raid. So they ju- it just keeps, they just keep ramping up and ramping up. And this is all uh, in, in preparation for a potential ground invasion. And there's speculation as to why they've held off on the ground invasion. There's a couple different theories out there. But um, this is where we're at at the moment. Uh, I don't even think I necessarily have a question to pitch to you. I just want to get your uh, top line thoughts on what we've seen so far unfolding in Gaza. Well, I mean, what you're seeing is um, a response that's par for course, but is 10, 10, 20 X for what we've seen historically. So, for example, by, by way of comparison, Operation Protective Edge in 2014 1,481 civilians died, of, of, of whom 531 were children. Um, we've obviously, we crossed that in the first few days of this. Uh, by way of comparison, six Israelis died in Operation Protective Edge, uh, whereas in this case, obviously, estimates between 1,300 and 1,400, uh, most of whom were military or police, uh, but many of whom were civilians. Um, obviously, over 200 people were, or rather, just under 200 people were kidnapped, uh, taken prisoner, whatever phrase you wish to use, and taken back into Gaza. Uh, some of whom, uh, many of whom, have been released, most of whom have not. Um, and so that is a different. Uh, prisoner swaps, kidnapping on both sides is very common, um, and they usually do prisoner swaps here and there over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, even before that. Um, and so this is a more beefed up version of that. It's a usually it's usually a half dozen at a time, but obviously 200 is a is a pretty high number compared to previous. So this is unprecedented. As everyone said, this is unprecedented. So people assume that the response such that it is, quote unquote, into Gaza is going to be unprecedented. Most Americans sort of don't know the context. They sort of just assume that Gaza is some kind of uh, Arab club med on the beach. You know, New York Times refers to it as an enclave, which kind of sounds like someplace you'd go on your honeymoon. Uh, but of course, it is one of the most impoverished places uh, on earth with uh, unemployment rates, uh, you know, as high as 40 uh, percent for youth, it's high as 80 percent. Um, it has uh, obviously it's very poor. Uh, they don't control electricity, fuel, water. Um, they, they Israel claims are technically not occupied. Um, but this is a bit of semantics. If I encircle a place militarily uh, and turn it into a prison and throw the keys to 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 the to, to the people in prison, uh, am I occupying it? Pretty much, you know, they control the water, uh, fishing rights, et cetera, et cetera. They have no freedom of movement. They can't move in and out. Uh, they have to register births, register deaths, uh, all that fun stuff. And so this is, um, this is the conditions from which this, this conflict emerges. Um, and 
Israel's response historically is and has been since they've 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 had a siege of Gaza is to just level it with bombs uh, because it's zero zero risk, right? It's kind of risk free. It's similar to the U.S. war on terror when they sort of handed it off to drones and. Obama would say, well, there's no boots on the ground, and that kind of seems anodyne and, and humane. But of course, there was no boots in the ground at uh, Pearl Harbor or, or Hiroshima, right? So boots in the ground is this euphemism he used, just which Israel uses to justify why they're not occupying it. But when your solution is to just blow bombs into a largely civilian place, uh, this leads to what you what you just laid out, which is massive civilian casualties over 20, I think we're at 2,500 dead children, which is unconscionable. I mean, uh, I mean, no one can even begin to conceive that. Those who have children know that your child's your entire world. Just imagine losing one, two, three, four, five at a time um, on this scale, it's unimaginable. And so um, Israel, uh, the IDF has unleashed they, 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 this, this, this bombing campaign ostensibly, uh, I'm not even sure they're even bothering to say they're targeted. I think that historically they've kind of argued they have this extreme precision, but I think this time the 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 defense minister said the goal was not, um, or rather an anonymous defense official, or was it the defense minister or someone in the defense department said the goal was not precision, but but damage, I believe was the term they used. Um, a lot of American pundits are still kind of operating under this 2014 framework, insisting yeah. that it's all about precision. But of course, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a fundamental contradiction of this claim, which is that they claim that their artisanal boutique missiles will find only Hamas fighters. Again, forget the body counts, right? Which now they're claiming are made up, which is its own kind of horrific uh, form of denial. But they are claiming that they have intimate pinpoint access to where these supposed Hamas uh, fighters and some Hamas infrastructure exist within Gaza and that they're doing their best to prevent civilian casualties. But at the same time, 2000 Hamas um, Islamic Jihad and, and PFLP fighters amassed at the border and pickup trucks with some machine guns for a few hours, and they had no idea. So one of those things can be true. They both can't be true. Either they have this brilliant real-time insight into who's who within Gaza, or they or they have no clue, and they're kind of just lobbing bombs because they're trying to drive the population further south, south well, to clear it out for... To, to clear it out either for an invasion as, or, or as some suspect, and I think not unjustifiably so, an, an actual ethnic cleansing campaign of pushing them to yeah. south Gaza and eventually into Egypt. And there's obviously much debate around that as well. Absolutely. And it's not like Netanyahu and his coalition partners haven't made it clear in the past exactly what their ideal solution would look like for Gaza. And it does amount exactly to what you said of an ethnic cleansing. And I want to zoom in on what you're talking about, this like dismissal of um, innocent civilian life. And you had the Israeli president, uh, Isaac Herzog, expressly saying this idea of innocent civilians I don't buy it. I don't support it. You know, making the case affirmatively, there is no innocent civilian life in Gaza. You had the president of the United States uh, downplaying civilian death yesterday. Uh, the, this was on Wednesday, saying, I'm sure innocents have been killed and it's the price of waging war. And also, as you mentioned, calling into question the numbers of casualties coming out of Gaza. Um, in terms of known Hamas militants who have been killed, uh, the number that is out there reported is 13 not 1,300, not 13% of the total casualties, but 13 people when you're talking about thousands of death, deaths. And I'm just wondering, Adam, if you are surprised by the dismissal of civilian casualties, well, the hand-waving sort of, away, or do you feel like this is just the way that we operate? It's kind of where you have to go. And this all started with the whole, you know, is, is that, because when I first started 
researching this topic in earnest about 10 years ago, you know, having, um, especially during Operation Protective Edge, which I think was kind of the more, which is, which is the last big one in 2014, I was surprised that people just took the Hamas numbers at face value, quote unquote, Hamas numbers, Hamas led ministry. And then what I quickly learned, uh, which the human, which human rights watch reiterated today is that they're, they're accurate. They're actually extremely accurate uh, historically. Um, and I wasn't surprised in the sense that I was, I, I necessarily thought they had any incentive to lie because it's like clear there are bombs coming down. Right. Um, I was just, I was just surprised that mainstream media took, uh, the Hamas led, uh, uh, uh um, health ministry numbers at face value. And then I quickly realized, again, within like an hour of researching that, oh, the reason why the New York Times, the AP, the Wall Street Journal, Human Rights Watch is because historically they've checked the numbers and they always add up. And that's kind of how credibility works, right? Um, credibility works because there's some third party that verifies this historically through, you know, uh, 2009 bombing. This is perverse that this is so common. This is how you build up credibility. Um, and that there was never really any doubt that these were true, that mainstream New York Times reporters editors uh took these numbers a because there is no other number because there's no other no one no international observers are allowed in gaza uh which is a key point here but b uh historically they're correct that um they don't really fudge them because they don't really have incentive to because it's not like the bombs are fake right um this is not like it's not like people aren't dying and the numbers are so horrific in and of themselves they don't really have a ton of incentive to um, and so this latest round is really just a muddying the waters thing. No one, again, Human Rights Watch quickly came out. This is, again, this is not an organization that is in any way pro-Palestine. If anything, historically, they're pro-U.S. Um, and they've, they've, they've been criticized for being, being so, uh, there was sort of, res began in response to, in the late 70s, in response to amnesty, who was being, who was, be, was viewed as being too soft on communists. Um, Amnesty International as well doesn't really doesn't dispute the numbers. Um, so this is kind of like a this is really a, a kind of half paying attention media cycle. Like no one of credibility really believes this. Um, this is something you do to kind of muddy the waters uh, because you don't want to sort of acknowledge the truth. Um, and even if you cut the numbers in half or into a third, it's still horrific. So I'm not really sure what's being gained by this, other than kind of confusing the MSNBC crowd for one or two more news cycles. Uh, which is really the goal here because, I mean, there was a poll released just this morning, um, this being Thursday, uh, showing that Biden has dropped 11 points in the last month with Democratic voters. And this is, much of that didn't even capture the 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 the, the, the Gaza onslaught since the polls from October 2nd uh, to, I think, October 22nd. Um, and so my guess is they're, that they're, that they're going to see this having a, a, a huge, you know, forget all the moral considerations, right? Let's set aside the, 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 the obvious moral implications of supporting this, this, this bombing and siege. Um, that this is going to be very unpopular very fast. Uh, and it is already very unpopular very fast. And so really all you have, again, if I'm in a whiteboarding session with the White House and the State Department and, you know, APAC or whomever, and I'm sort of trying to figure out how to make this palatable for the next few weeks, Mudding the waters on body counts is, you know, if I, again, if I was soulless and made 600 grand a year as a, as a consultant, the first thing I would do is say, let's muddy the waters on the numbers um, and have people, because then, then, then those pushing for a ceasefire are on the defensive and you're having to sort of relitigate um, and to, and to sort of waste time basically justifying the humanity of the people being bombed and the scale of the bombing. Uh, despite that historically, again, there's not really been a dispute. You know, if this was the first time, I would sort of say, okay, well, like, let's have a conversation about those numbers and and how we verify them. But this is historically, this isn't this was never this has never been an issue. Uh, this is just a new issue that is being made up by pro-Israel media types. Um and 
again, it exists to confuse the the viewer into and mostly to provide cover for uh, Biden. And it's bipartisan too, because obviously Republicans support the full scale destruction of Gaza, and Biden yeah. is is currently the Democrat. So when things are bipartisan, any kind of conspiracy theory, if it's bipartisan, can be can be pushed, whether it be Havana syndrome or 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 weapons of mass destruction or whatever. Like if it's bipartisan, you don't really need any kind of uh, evidence. You can sort of just yeah. muddy the waters and. It's like they're not time. even trying. It's like they're not even yeah. trying. I mean, that's that's the way I look at it. And I like the phrase you use, muddy the waters is the perfect way to describe it. Uh, because it, even even if I grant the point, right? Oh my God, you can't trust the numbers, which again, I don't grant the point. But even if you do grant the point, like you said, cut the numbers in half. That's 3,500 deaths and 1,500 kids who were killed. Like it is still yeah. morally egregious. And then this reminded me of the, after the Al-Ali hospital was bombed and you had all this debate now, oh my God, was it a misfired uh, Islamic Jihad rocket or was it the IDF? And I feel like on, in that discussion too, it totally misses the point because according to UN numbers, that is one of 62 different health facilities that have been bombed in this, in this campaign. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, who who did it matters. But in that case in particular, all the evidence Israel has provided so far has been debunked. The New York Times just debunked both the, the main video, the Pentagon and the Israel was supposedly basing your high intelligence on. So they, they keep and of course, they had the Hamas inter, intercept reporting, which was sure. roundly yeah. debunked as a, as a cheap forgery. I, God, I don't know how Mossad doesn't have a couple uh, guys who can speak decent uh, sort of Levant <laughs> Arabic, but evidently they don't or at least they don't have them in a pinch. Right. I guess they maybe have them on retainer and they are they're off in another job. Um, but they, uh, so all this has been debunked. So even that was sort of just to buy time and muddy the waters. Cause my guess is again, I think in from future months, we'll realize that that would have, again, it would have been an extraordinary exception. Everybody was jumping on the New York times, but historically, I think the most, uh, any kind of, uh, rocket from Gaza has ever caused in terms of body counts was I think a dozen, maybe at most right. I mean, here you yeah. had, you had estimates of two to 300. Uh, and then there's just Occam's of. razor of like, there's right. been at this point, what, 8,000 bombs from the IDF Yeah, so everyone was super precious saying, oh, well, you know, you, you know, how dare you commit this blood libel of accusing Israel of bombing a hospital? It's like, you're bombing the whole place. Like, this is not, <laughs> I mean, you know, generously, we'll say it's an accident, but like, it's not, again, it's, I, you know, you're, fi you're, fi you're firing Uzi fire into a crowd and you're offended that you hit the wrong person. It's, it's, it's absurd. Um, and, and again, if you want to, we can debate who did what. I think that's perfectly reasonable. But to the sort of preciousness and the kind of small beans and they're like, how dare you accuse Israel? It's like, well, you're bombing the place. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, and and it's not like they're the denying the bombing apartment buildings. Right. It's not like they're denying no. bombing mosques or marketplaces or even U.N. shelters. There was one yeah. U.N. shelter that was directly hit. And there was a time when there were five others that were indirectly. hit. I think that number now is literally in the 30s. So, like, if you're yeah, going to deny all these other it, things, what are we even talking about? And a State Department spokesman, forgive me, I don't, I don't remember whom, said, "Well, you know, hospitals historically, you know, when the first news broke, they said hospitals historically have been used as 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 places where Hamas hide, hides fighters and weapons." And it's like, well, you've already justified it, so now we're just negotiating. I don't know. The whole thing is 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 about bullying people, and so now now that this bullying effort has worked, now you see all these headlines saying, you know, a, a blast kill blows up a mosque or a blast blows up this church, and it's like, okay, well, they've they've done their job. They've taken agency away from who's doing the violence. Um, and, and, uh, again, I, New York times was using Occam's razor in, in a war zone. They, they, they attributed who said it, uh, Palestinian officials or whatever. And then, but the, the sort of very disingenuous bullying campaign achieved its primary goal. And again, this is all just sort of by time because eventually these things kind of run out and then we sort of move on and we, there's another horrific bombing, um, 
and 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 that we sort of forget. I'm sorry. Is that leaf blowing really loud? I apologize. No, we don't, don't even don't hear, hear it. it at all. We don't even okay, hear anything. No. Be. All right, sorry. Um, and then we sort of move on to the next um, to the next uh, mass killing event, and then we sort of say, okay, well, now we're back to square one. And and this is why I think you know people have said, let's not get distracted with all this stuff. I mean, I think it's good for journalists to to, to focus on it because I do think there's something to be said for the truth and attribution. I think that actually matters, at least for posterity. Yeah. But in terms of focusing the message. The focus, the, the the fundamental premises are not in dispute, right? I've, now I sound like the kind of uh, the, the, the 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 southern lawyer doing the closing arguments, right? The the, the 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 basic facts of the case are not in dispute. They're not disputing the basic the basic facts, and the focus and the laser focus on a ceasefire without getting distracted by college kids and how this is going to play in on this election and all this stuff is, I think, really central to what the messaging ought to be for those who are looking at these horrific images and feeling helpless. Um, but you're not helpless, you know. Obviously, it takes a village to push this, but 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 it, but we can we can push the messaging because I think on a basic fundamental moral level, most people know that even if you accept the kind of Bronze Age logic of an eye for an eye, right? On some intuitive level, on some basic Bronze Age level, we say they kill 1,400 of our guys, we're going to kill 1,400 of their guys, right? And you sort of accept the logic of terrorism, uh, quote unquote terrorism, and the logic of of collective responsibility. Even if one accepts that, right? Um, and I think on some level, a lot of liberals do accept that. Even if you accept that, we are now way beyond that. We are way, right. way, way beyond that point. Israel's made its point. If you think there's some war aim of freeing the hostages, like Chuck Norris is going to go in there and do it, we know that that's not really reflective in the things that Israel has done. They've routinely turned down hostage negotiation offers um, because they don't want to stop bombing. Uh, we know that they're, they're, they've made it very clear their goal is to eradicate Hamas. It's not really to free the hostages. Um, quote unquote of Hamas, even though they've kind of walked that back, they're basically just punishing to punish, and they want to make a statement so that they can say never do this again, and that they are collectively holding people in Gaza responsible for Hamas. And what they want them to do, I guess, and if you take their their argument to its logical extreme, and they'll say this, they'll say, you know, the people had made a choice; they voted for him. Of course, less than eighteen percent of people voted for Hamas um, who are currently live there. Not that that would make it okay anyway, even if it was one hundred percent. Um, is that they're saying they need to rise up. So what they want is they, I guess the argument, again, I don't think this is in good faith, but the argument they formulated is that the people don't rise up and, and take down Hamas, right? And unarmed people being bombed without fuel and water are supposed to do the end of High Plains Drifter or the Magnificent Seven. And the townsfolk are supposed to rise up and like, I mean, it's absurd, right? The whole thing doesn't make any sense. It's all a post hoc rationalization for collective punishment and ethnic cleansing because they, 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 if you look again, if you read their statements, they very obviously believe in collective punishment. And the number one way we know that is a cut off water and f electricity and fuel for everybody. This is, these aren't targeted or precise things. These are, they, they, they hold people in Gaza universally and categorically, including apparently children, responsible for what Hamas does. And they, they, they operate under the logic and the framework of collective punishment. And so um, this idea that somehow they, they, that they're even operating in this, this liberal humanitarian bombs framework is, is, is belied by everything they've done. Um, it right. is operating in a totally different universe. They are clearly punishing Gazans as such, not as any kind of organ or, or, or representative or fighter within, within Hamas or, or, or Islamic Jihad or PFLP. And are, 
and are fairly open about it. I mean, I was listening They're to pretty some, open of, about it. some of BB's recent comments. You know, he went back to this, <clears throat> we are the people of the light. They are the people of the darkness, saying we're going to realize the prophecy of Isaiah, you know, cribbing from David Frum with the axis of evil nonsense. Isaac Herzog, as I was saying before, you know, saying there are no innocent civilians. Like, they're not shy about explaining exactly how they view this conflict. And so one thing I've appreciated about your analysis is you've been really clear about how all of this attempt by, you know, people like Joe Biden, other liberals in the Democratic Bernie. Party, Bernie, much to my grave disappointment, to put a bit of a nicer face on it and say, please, please watch out for the laws of war and please, you know, consider the civilians and they're not all Hamas. We're not going to actually do anything to make sure that you don't continue committing the war crimes you're already committing, but we're going to pretend that we're, you know, wringing our hands about this and we're so concerned. And you've in particular been clear about the difference between what, you know, Biden and Bernie and Tony Blinken are calling for, which is a quote unquote humanitarian pause versus what actually needs to be done, which is a complete ceasefire. Um, I'd love for you to lay right. out those distinctions and why, you know, because some, an MSNBC viewer, just sort of like, you know, general person out there who isn't following that closely might right. hear humanitarian pause and think, okay, that sounds pretty good. Like, yeah. why are we beating up on him for that? What is your response? Well, my response is, which is, again, I have a piece in the nation coming out Friday. Um, so I, I think this will come out around the same time. So I won't be yep. scooping myself. Um, not that it really matters because it's more important to get the talking points across is that um, the humanitarian um, pause is a made up thing. And, and what's important to know is that this is not something that anyone is calling for. Uh, the a, a loose network of all of Palestinian civil society as calling for a ceasefire. The UN has called for a ceasefire. It's, it's humanitarian or it's, it's human rights agency. Uh, 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 Oxfam, this just morning, Amnesty International, which is quite extraordinary. Amnesty International doesn't usually deliberately call for ceasefires. Uh, they, they don't, they don't call against or for war all, usually. So it's actually pretty extraordinary that Amnesty International will call for a ceasefire. Um, polls show 80% of Democrats support a ceasefire, 60% of Republicans, the majority therefore of voters. Uh, support a ceasefire. Um, the vast majority of countries in the world support a ceasefire in the UN. The UN, the US had to veto that at the Security Council, as they've been doing for for, for Israel for for many decades. So the the ask very uniformly is centering around, and obviously these millions of people at protests and and and, and Jewish peace activists in the US and Palestinian activists. Um, you know, it, groups like if not now, uh, groups like Win Without War finally came out after they got bullied into it. Because they tried to do some half-ass um, humanitarian pause thing or, or follow human rights concern trolling. So you have 80% of Democrats voters, according to polls, support a ceasefire, yet less than 5% of Democrats elected support it. Um, this is this is the ask. The ask is for a to stop the fucking bombing, not to do what many suspect the humanitarian pause is, because it's kind of a again a, a term invented in a whiteboarding session that probably my guess is cap or J Street uh, mm -hmm. is where this is coming from. Mm -hmm. um, and this says stop bombing in this particular spot so we can bring in humanitarian aid. I guess we'll bring in some water and then we're going to allow Israel to just go back to bombing you after we give you water. It's absurd. It doesn't make any sense. For anything to happen, the ask needs to be to stop the bombing. But the the word from the White House and the Democratic establishment and, and, and the pro-Israel uh, groups out there is you have to let Israel do its thing. It needs to get whatever plan it needs to, quote unquote, eradicate Hamas or free the hostages or whatever kind of thin moral narrative they're providing it that, again, I don't think are very credible. 
because I don't think I don't think if they if they really wanted to free the hostage, they would be doing what they're doing, which is largely bombing hostages. Uh, I also don't think they would be. Um, I, I think the idea of eradicating Hamas is a bit of a fantasy because I think the ground invasion is kind of we can just discuss whether or not that's going to happen. But there doesn't really seem to be a goal other than just administering collective punishment or Correct. in some cases, basically creating a buffer zone, which is to say cleansing northern Gaza of Palestinians, moving them all to the to the desert in very south Gaza or into the Sinai if, if, if they can bribe Egypt enough um, and that that that's really their goal and that we need to create space for that. And you cannot undermine the White House by calling for a ceasefire because that's a specific thing with a specific meaning, which is to say, stop bombing. Stop bombing these people in Gaza who have nothing to do with what happened on October 7th, who are just fucking random people. Um, and they needed to create space for Israel to go, you know, again, to do its Bronze Age, its, its Bronze Age recompense. And, and in doing so, they needed they need to they need to provide space and cover for Democrats who don't want to look like cold-hearted monsters and don't want to look like they're supporting because again, these horrific images are coming out every day. Children being pulled out of rubble, disfigured, all this horrific stuff, right? People can see that. And they know Joe Biden's associated with that. And of course, genocide Joe is alliterative. It's catchy. Um, and again, one doesn't want to be glib about this, but that is in fact what's going on. That is the reality of what's going on. This is not like a made-up nihilistic, you know, Russia Today thing. This is like a real thing that's happening and Biden is actually responsible for it and he needs to stop being responsible for it. And so they have to provide these kind of stop measure gaps. And so initially what you saw from people like Elizabeth Warren um, and uh, Ro Khanna was this, Israel needs to respect the rules of war. We need to, we need to reduce civilian casualties and we need to like, maybe, maybe they'd say turn the water back on, which is obviously better than no water, but is it's like, well, 90% of the thing causing their death and misery is the bombs. Why are you not talking about stopping the bombs from landing on them? That is obviously the most morally urgent ask. Uh, and anyone who isn't within the democratic machine or, or, or kind of political milieu knows that, which is why they're all calling for a ceasefire. Only people who are within, who are loyal to the democratic party and the white house and and those and those who are either who either are ideologically or financially aligned with these pro-Israel organizations, they they intuitively know this is ridiculous. That this is this is obscene. That this is immoral. What we're doing right now, we, we it's obvious to anyone with two eyes. Which is why eighty percent of Democrats want to fuck a ceasefire. Right? You only have to be completely steeped in racist uh, tropes and ideology to believe that this is at all proportional, or reasonable, or 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 or, or morally sound. And so they need to create space and they need to create time. And what, the way you do that is by coming up with half-assed solutions. And thus far, and this is what made the Bernie Sanders call for a humanitarian pause. Again, something that no one's asking for. No Palestinian group, no peace group, not Oxfam, not the UN, uh, not, not Doctors Without Borders. They're all calling for a ceasefire. Humanitarian pause is not a word I've seen in any of their press releases. Just a thing they made up in some, some, some blob thing they made up in a whiteboarding session five minutes ago. Um, was extremely disappointing because Sanders knows better. Again, he's surrounded by, you know, cap guys and Center for American Progress, these, these kind of, uh, you know, ladder climbers, not to sort of absolve him of his responsibility. He, he knows what he's doing. He's always been dicey on Israel, but he's been saying things lately, especially about Netanyahu that have indicated that, oh, like clearly he's breaking with the, the sort of bog standard APAC line, but, you know, not here, not here. And I think it's going to be a stain on his legacy. I think this this moment in time will be a stain on a lot of people's legacy. I think that any kind of um, 
any kind of response that would have been viewed as being being comported to like protecting civilian life or international law pretty much became obviously not going to happen within about 10 minutes of Israel's response. So I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. You know, when you see people like Ro Khanna say, well, you know, we we really need to respect and Israel needs to respect human rights law. And I'm like, what fucking planet do you live on? Do you yeah, know they're what not Israel's doing, been doing that. to Palestine for the, la for the last 75 years, much less last 20 years? When have they ever followed international law? The occupation itself is in violation of about a half a dozen international yep. laws. So when you come along and you do this this hand wringing and you and you and you're asking for this boutique targeted, you know, Zach Beecham did this at Vox. Like, here's how Israel needs to respond. It needs to be nicer. And it's like, yeah, but that's not happening in reality. And the right. fucking time, space, three-dimensional world we live in, that is not what's actually happening. So why don't you stop them stop to ask the bombs that are actually happening rather than politely suggesting a bombing that is never going to happen? Is the disconnect ideological or is it financial or is it both because there is it's a both. huge it's, disconnect between normal people and a lot of what's people going are just racist DC. and don't a lot a lot of people are racist and just don't view palestinians as human beings or view them all as kind of terrorist or proto-terrorist i mean a lot of it a lot of people are just fucking racist a lot of it is venality a lot of people have expressed concern about groups like apac and and uh, even J Street has said they're going to punish people who came out in support of a ceasefire. I think they may have eased off on that a little bit, but initially they were making calls to to quote unquote you know to progressives and liberals in Congress saying if you support a ceasefire, we're gonna we are gonna go after you. Oh. Um, and so it's. It's, well, and if I could just interject, I mean, yeah, Democrats in the House and well, actually in the House and the Senate, they have the very recent example of um, Democratic Majority for Israel (DMFI) coming in with a, a lot of money against yeah. Summer Lee and against Nina Turner yep. and a bunch of uh, against they a bunch funded of all people. The anti, they, they funded all the anti-Sanders uh, ads in 2020 in Iowa Ex or rather exactly. in uh, South Carolina and Nevada. Yeah. Exactly. So they've they've seen what this can do to a campaign and they're they're terrified of it and they have no moral spine and there are approximately zero point zero dollars to be made um, and political benefit to be gained from, you know, calling for the ceasefire. But that's all it takes. Like we there's literally a genocide going on and that's all it takes to get them to stop. I, mean, I was listening to Ryan uh, Grimm talk about uh, Fetterman in particular, who has been <sighs> so bad, so bad and go, like going out of his way to be yeah, horrible. Just being gr gr gratuitous and cruel and, and race baity in a way that right. was really cynical, really exactly. cynical. And and Ryan's analysis was basically like, yeah, he wanted to keep this pack out of his race in his primary against Connor Lamb. And so he just basically was like, tell me what you want me to say in his Senate campaign. And now he's just like sticking to it. He's just decided to lean into it. And so, I mean, that does shape a lot of the political dynamics here, which is how you can get. And I'd love you to speak specifically to this. Yeah, we got our, our new speaker. Yay. Great. Um, and their first act was to pass this resolution, again, reaffirming, oh, Israel, do whatever you want. It's fine. We've got your back no matter what. And also a bunch of like kind of belligerent language against Iran as well. And there are only 10 people who voted yeah. against that. So, I mean, you're you're basically you're co-signing these well, they, not they, they, theoretical they, war crimes, these things that are happening right now. You're saying, yes, we are with you. We agree with it 100 percent. Well, they, they, they emotionally extort you in a way that basically designs these bills to have headlines against you as well. So like they'll say, we, you know, in this resolution, we affirm our support to return the hostages. 
And then they'll say, and also we oppose Iran, and they don't mention Palestinians at all. And they say we need to support Israel and stand with Israel. So then if you say, well, I don't necessarily support the current Israeli bombing campaign, the headline on Fox News and in, 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 in NBC will read, you know, Congressman Johnson uh, opposes freeing the hostages. Ugh. So everyone's doing this kind of moral extortion. It's very typical. They don't want the bad headlines. It looks bad. This is what they always do to anyone in the squad. They kind of have 10 guys in a room picking apart every little word they say, every little thing they write um, to make them seem like soulless monsters who, you know, are anti-Semites or whatever. Um, and, I, you know, and one wants to be careful not to sort of overemphasize the role of pro-Israel groups. I think they're, I think they are significant. I think they're probably 50% of the equation, but the other 50% of the equation really is a fundamental dehumanization of Arabs and Muslims in this country that goes way beyond Israel. And yeah. it's is, it is, it is fundamental to how we've oriented our foreign policy in the last 20 years. It's, it comes out of Hollywood. It comes out of, you know, 24. It comes out of our political discourse. Even the entire framing around like the war on terror and the idea of like, why do they hate us? All this bullshit has been so ingrained in people's minds that they, that they think, oh, they, again, they have an ideological commitment to the project of Zionism, which is viewed as being, again, a civ sort of civilizing mission in, 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 in the Middle East. And that is kind of ideological in a lot of ways for a lot of people. Um, and, and of course, you also have, you know, people who were genuinely, I think the big part of it is people were genuinely traumatized by the images of what happened on October 7th. You know, this was... There is a 9/11 element to the to the horrific nature of of many of of the images and stories and testimonials people have seen, and I think that 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 trauma that is again as we learned after 9/11, right? Um, we that that trauma and that collective trauma can begin to shut off your brain about the subsequent revenge trauma that that one is is leveling against the yeah. 99.9 percent population has nothing to do with what happened on October 7th. And that, I think I think there's also that weaponized trauma is powerful. There's also yeah. a generational piece here. I mean, most members of Congress are old as hell. And if you look at the polling numbers in terms of how older Americans view this versus how <clears> younger <throat> Americans view this, it's almost more stark than the partisan divide. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it comes out of this like very Cold War us versus them kind of mentality and Israel's with us. So, you know, we got to be with them. And that's that. Um, to your point about just like the inherent racism, um, you know, it did not escape my notice that of the 10 people who voted against this resolution. There was one white guy, Thomas Massey, the one Republican. Everyone else was libertarian of color. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, you there's, know, been, there's no there's no white people supporting the ceasefire resolution. No, we're not. Right, we're, not exactly. uh, we're not. We're, we're not. We're not sending our best. And so, I mean, so you have, you know, you have a, an identity piece, you have a, an age piece. And I think that also helps to explain why there is such a gulf between how most um, Democrats, like base Democrats feel and the, you know, what elites are actually doing here. I mean, part of it does come down to this massive generational divide where, you know, if you were raised on all this propaganda endlessly, people have a hard time, I guess, letting go of that and this very simplistic view of the world. Yeah, you're having, there's definitely a generational divide among voters. I'm, I'm not convinced that transfers over to Congress just because what matters is who funds people more so than what the, what the demographics of the people are. I do think in the case of many of the people who signed off for the ceasefire, um, the reason why they're, many ways, the reason why they're not white is because they're in districts that are largely majority people of color who do just, who just don't have this kind of uh, knee-jerk fidelity to, to yeah. Israel um, uh, for, for different reasons. 
Um, and so uh, I think that I think the demographics aspect definitely plays a large role in it. I I I, I think it's it's the, the the it's also the amount of work that activists. Um, I don't want to name check because I'll, I'll forget groups and I don't want to do that. But the amount of work behind the scenes these groups have done over the last five to 10 years, building relationships with people in Congress instead of just writing it off. Um, you know, we can debate the merits of entryism or not, but it's definitely true that like you need to have a foundation of anti-war groups and pro-Palestine groups and, and, and Jewish non-Zionist or anti-Zionist groups in these institutions and having influence in these institutions to provide them the collateral and the media protection to have these positions. And that just wasn't the case 20 years ago. Um, again, I don't think we would have even seen anyone sign up on a ceasefire uh, without being too corny and optimistic. So there's work, just sort of obscure work that's being done to lay the groundwork for providing cover for these things. Um, and also, I just think where people get their news, like, you know, getting your news from TikTok and Twitter is just going to give you a different curated experience. God, I mean, I watched an hour of CNN the other day, yesterday, and it's it really was just a. I mean, they'll occasionally have on one token Palestinian who isn't shitty, like basically once every twenty four hours, all like a non shitty segment. But the vast vast bulk of it is just a IDF press release. It's it's keeping all the narratives about you know the attack and the this and and the hostages, and it's just like you would you would you wouldn't even know what was going on in Gaza. You wouldn't know that wow. the body count was what it was, and so. Wow. Again, I think I think the generational divide is really a product of where people get their news, which is not a very original or insightful observation. I know people have said that before, but the when you when you scroll through social media, you're just getting an entirely different curated experience. Uh, even though, of course, people try to curate it in certain ways, but ultimately, like you can't put a spin on the images we're seeing. There's not a you know you could pay me millions of dollars and give me a whiteboarding session and a bunch of coke and Adderall in 48 hours, and I could not come up with anything to to justify this. Um, so there, there's no 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 PR mastermind can can come up with anything that makes these images and our responsibility for them seem sanitized or anodyne or justified. It's at this point it is completely gratuitous and completely uh, just manifestly in the most basic way like not justifiable. So let's talk about the media a little more specifically because I've seen so like most of the stuff coming from you know, legacy media, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, abysmal is the word that comes to mind. Uh, early on, there were a couple of segments with Jake Tapper that went viral because he uh, actually gave a shit about Palestinian civilians and he was sort of pressing some Israeli government officials on that. But those segments are sort of few and far between. So my, my general breakdown of it is I think uh, legacy media on TV has done a pretty horrendous job. I think that... Uh, I actually think there's a, a decent job being done in print, but also print, I don't think is nearly as popular. So it's, it, you know, people don't uh, rely on that as much and, and that's an issue. And then, you know, I've gotten not to pat myself on the back here, but I'm Chris, I'm sure you've experienced the same thing. I've gotten a lot of people reaching out, like genuinely thanking me for being able to do these really long segments where I break down all the updates and stuff in a way that's way more detailed than anything that you'd see on uh, cable news. Right. So what's, what's your, view on how the media is handling this? Is it like universally bad? Are there bright spots? I mean, I've seen, like I said, I think print has done an okay job, but cable news has done a pretty bad job. You know, unfortunately, I haven't had time to do any kind of like deep analysis or survey of media coverage on this. I, I've been mostly trying to do catch up with, um, again, disputing the kind of basic bullshit. I haven't really had time to do a, a real analysis of CNN or MSNBC. Uh, all I can say is just my anecdotal experience watching them. Uh, has been pretty bad. Um, it's a lot of horse race, a lot of like, um, 
again, a lot of disproportionate focus, deserved and undeserved victims, kind of Chomsky 101 stuff. Um, and then of course the, the, like the obsession with Hamas and Iran, cause they, they, people can look at the pictures and see pictures of Gaza and see like, oh, that's like an open air prison. Like it's kind of obvious. And so there isn't really enough like David versus Goliath. So they, they, I think for a, a while they were trying to connect and the president, the white house were trying to connect Hamas to like Russia. And then that really didn't really fly. Cause that doesn't make it easier. Like, <laughs> like, well, Russia's friends with Iran and Iran funds Hamas. And it was like very kind of, you know, uh, you know, true detective, like conspiracy board, it didn't quite work. Yeah, I saw these like eight degrees of separation kind of like. <laughs> yeah, attempts. and it's like, yeah, it was pretty bad. Even someone said Russia was directing it. I think one one guy tried to pawn that one off. So um, they're, what they're trying to do is this is why the focus is on Iran. It's it's typical kind of Israel. Every time something happens in Palestine, you blame Iran because then it says this is basically a foreign operation, which gives it a sense, makes it sexier, makes it sort of more with higher stakes and it kind of subverts the David and Goliath dynamic a little bit. Um, but if people see that, they know that doesn't really pass the sniff test. They know that um, even if it did, it still wouldn't justify. I mean, this is what's interesting, right? Uh, Israel, their new messaging of the last few days has been uh, the Hamas leadership is in Qatar, living the living the life. They, you know, going out to nightclubs and living in, in wealth and staying in high rise uh, penthouse hotels while the people of Gaza they ostensibly represent suffer. And they show all these videos of them like hanging out in Qatar that may or may not be real. And I'm thinking, well, okay, if Qatar is the command and control center of Hamas, then why don't you go attack a proper country? Go attack Qatar. Like, what are you doing bombing a bunch of women and children in hospitals and mosques like that have, that are, that have no air defense, have no air force, have no surface to air capacity? Like, why don't you go attack a proper country instead of just lobbing bombs to an unprotected population? So it's like even their own propaganda doesn't make any sense. Um, and this is what this is why I think they, they they're constantly trying to redirect your attention to other things because... Again, the images and the and the and the stats and the figures and the horrific videos of 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 grieving of grieving fathers and children and mothers, they they kind of speak for themselves. There's not really much else to say beyond that. Everything else is just distraction. Do you think that the Biden administration, you mentioned that poll where his standings already dropped 11 points, at least with Democrats. There's all these pieces now about like Arab Americans in Michigan who are absolutely furious and young people who are disgusted and calling him Genocide Joe. And, you know, already his reelect was in terrible jeopardy before all of this. I mean, do you think that any of the apparently doesn't care about the like the babies and the women and the innocent people here? Do you think that the political calculation ends up weighing on him and causes a change of course? You know, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't. I try not to do um, horse race punditry, but I will say this, which is, which is, I, I believe it's the only thing that'll move the needle. Unfortunately. I mean, yeah, to an extent, I think a lot of the, the moral dimensions do do matter. But I think the thing that really kind of lights a fire under people's ass is this belief that it will have tremendous political consequence. Now, historically, Democrats, they care deeply about winning, but they care deeply about winning within a very specific ideological framework, which is to right. say, like, even if Medicare for all will pull at 90 percent, they won't support it because it doesn't exist within that ideological framework of their funders. Um, this is so toxic, so political and happening so fast um, you know, whether or not it, it creates a mitigating influence on Israel is a gradient. On the one hand, you have to sort of stop bombing. On the other hand, you have like maybe bomb less. And I think the hope is that it can have some gradient effect on, on the extre extremeness of their violence and maybe already has. Um, but ultimately, the ask has to remain firm. It has to remain on a ceasefire. 
Um, and to the extent to which it it you know they all want to go down with the ship and see it as being unpopular, I do think it can move certain elected, certain people in Congress. Basically, the 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 very grim calculus is the political downside of supporting the horrific siege and bombing has to be greater than the political downside of the negative ads that are going to be run by Democrats united for Israel and APAC in in 2 years that that that's the calculus yeah right and this has to outweigh that for this to stop for enough people who are in power and influence and this is really really what made bernie sanders comment such a horrific moral abdication of his responsibility and a stain on his legacy because he had an opportunity to really move the needle on the ceasefire he would have been the first person i believe in the senate to support yeah, it he obviously correct. represents the constituency of millions of of supporters and he comes along with a fucking humanitarian pause it is it is unconscionable it is it is it is indefensible it it is it is it is it is a total betrayal of everything people who worked on his campaign in 2016 because he had again over 300 staffers and volunteers made an made a, a you know an open letter and a video begging him to support a ceasefire and he didn't do it it is it is it actually would have been he, better for him to say nothing yeah. than to be it would have like, been absolutely it would have been much Joe better for him to and, say nothing and anthony yeah. blinken's position humanitarian <clears throat> po- i mean it really was disgraceful no, it, was, it, it, it was a total ab- moral abdication it, 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 utterly 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 horrible and embarrassing for everyone involved and part of the problem here is that now it's like the Overton window has moved so much that like every reasonable person in the conversation is just screaming, for the love of God, stop the bombing, stop the bombing now. Uh, but that also makes it so that there's no room in the conversation for the broader Israel-Palestine issue and talking about bringing about Palestinian human rights. And I'm curious, Adam, what your thoughts are on the different uh, schools of thought. I mean, Crystal, you made a devastating point the other day that like the most likely scenario is literally the no state solution they complete the ethnic cleansing which is like you don't even want to contemplate that because how evil and horrible that is but of course the you know the debate uh and the dialogue on the left for a very long time was sort of split between this notion of the two-state solution or the one-state solution one state solution being uh democratic rights for all you know equal representation one state and basically just like end the apartheid system and the occupation and treat palestinians like equal human beings that's one the other one is this idea of a two-state solution and people argue over the details but i think the general gist of it is like 1967 borders there's an israel and there's a palestine they you know get un representation maybe you keep some un peacekeepers there to make sure that no more fighting breaks out or whatever and i think the general consensus was that the two-state solution is kind of dead because it became readily obvious that nobody on the israeli side in power had any interest whatsoever in going down that road i actually found it interesting that apparently in 2017 or 2018 even hamas had come out and said you know what we'll take the 1967 borders on a two-state solution but i'm curious what your thoughts are on that now do you think that the the only way out is the one state democratic rights for all uh do you think it's possible to go to the 1967 borders and do a two-state solution of the things that well, are on I mean, the table what are your thoughts this is somewhat beyond my my scope as a media critic except to say we did an episode in 2017 called the asymptotic two-state solution which is that the two-state solution functionally as an idea had become a justification for apartheid for the last 20 30 years that at some point maybe in the 90s it was kind of possible but but it was um 
has been dead for a very long time. Everyone knows this, even, you know, Peter Beinart, who made his whole career off being a two-state guy, is, is, you know, four years ago acknowledged that it was dead and that we need to support a one state. Um, there's two reasons. Number one, there's nowhere to put a Palestinian state. This is what people don't understand. I, I urge people to go online and look at where the settlements, and these aren't settlements like little house in the prairie, little, little homes. These are Remax home. They look like the suburbs of Phoenix. They're, 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 they're not going anywhere, these Israeli settlements. And they are specifically and strategically placed in such a manner that you make a Palestinian state, a contiguous Palestinian state in the West Bank impossible. Um, so there's nowhere to put a Palestinian state, even if we wanted to put one, you would have to massively re relocate, I think, um, 600, 700,000 Israeli settlers. Um, there's nowhere to put it. Um, they have no interest in leaving. They're not going to leave. And they're all heavily armed now because they're arming settlers in the West Bank. Um, and uh, so the idea of a two-state solution has, I think, long been a smokescreen and a kind of, it's something politicians can say to kind of look like they're impartial and like they care. Right. Um, the reality has been for a long time, which again, I, others have noted more eloquently than I am, is that there's been, there is a one state in Israel. There's been a one state in Israel since uh, 1967, effectively. Um, there's just an apartheid state. And you need to make it not an apartheid state. You need to give people equal rights. Um, and fears about what that would look like in terms of demographic and the kind of quote unquote Jewish character of the state. I mean, there's no way around it. Ethno states are not sustainable, especially ethno states that are predicated on the on the dispossession and displacement of people who lived there prior, previously. You can call them, you know, indigenous or native if you wish. I know Israelis get offended by that, but they are. Um, and uh they had they should be able to walk, move freely and operate freely within a country with equal rights just as just as blacks in south africa did and the south african model while not perfect obviously it has major problems even today in terms of not really addressing the economic inequalities um but it provides some kind of model of what what a post-apartheid israel would look like um and one of the reasons people are worried about expelling gazans into um the Sinai or some kind of ghettoization within southern Gaza is that that in, if you do run the numbers, it does change the dynamic of of the quote unquote demographic problem. And without Gaza, Israel is a majority Jewish country, um, not by a huge margin, but it is. And so then they therefore have the ability to annex uh, the West Bank. Now, obviously, people say, well, you know, Israel didn't invite the attack of October 7th on themselves. And it's like, well, of course not. But, you know, it wouldn't be the first time in history that a right-wing politician has used a traumatic mass death event to push an ulterior agenda, right? Remember the war in Iraq? What did that have to do with 9-11? Didn't matter, did it? They had the, they had it all written up on a whiteboard somewhere and they were ready to go with it. So uh, that's the fear. Um, the reality is, is that obviously Netanyahu has not been interested in a two-state solution ever. Uh, the two-state solution, again, it provides a kind of squishy third way that doesn't that's not real. The reality is we have to have equal rights. Uh, there has to be a, 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 some, you know, we can debate whether or not it's a, bina a binational country, um, but simply giving everyone equal rights and equal citizenship and getting rid of ethno-supremic birthright citizenship where someone who's born and raised, you know, in, in, a, in a town in the West Bank can be kicked out by a settler and have to and become uh, a refugee. Uh, but someone who's never even been to Palestine can come from California or Michigan or New York and then settle in a settlement. I mean, it's absurd. Um, based on their ethnicity. Um, that is not a rational way to, to, to sort of organize a society, but obviously there are millions of Jews in Israel. 
there are millions of Jews that are going to remain in any kind of one-state solution, and there needs to be systems in place to protect everybody. Uh, that's my personal opinion. Uh, again, I know there's much debate around around the. In case you don't know, it's a controversial subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's much debate around uh, what that would look like. But all all I know is that the current system of brutal apartheid and siege and starvation and, and dispossession is not good and bad and needs to stop. That is, um, that's actually my last question for you, Adam, is um, what do you expect to come after this hell, this particular specific iteration of the hell? Because... The Netanyahu government is swearing they don't have a plan for a day after, a day after the ground invasion, day after they theoretically, uh, you know, get rid of Hamas, which I don't even think is a possible goal and isn't consistent with the actions that they're actually taking. Um, no. But they're claiming they they don't have any idea what the day after is going to be. And I just don't buy it because it's not like Netanyahu hasn't been clear and his coalition partners haven't been clear about what their goals are. And so my reading is less, they don't know what they want to do, than they know what they want to do. They just think that they can't say it right now because the U.S. and Biden specifically need to have some kind of cover here. Yeah, one of the problems with with the red, the red, the red flags and the sirens going off about the G word, genocide, which a lot of people are allergic to discussing, but I do think it's useful here. Um, and many genocide scholars including Rev Segal, have come out and said this is like a textbook genocide and, 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 it, it, and maybe uh, the cleansing in certain key ways, is that to have the smoking gun evidence of that, you really have to wait till after the ethnic cleansing. And so a lot of people who are not prone to like being overly hyperbolic or too paranoid are really, again, even groups like Human Rights Watch, a relatively conservative group, uh, human, the Human Rights Agency at the UN, uh, are coming out and saying like, they're not saying the word genocide, but they're saying potential genocide or genocide-like elements because you really don't know until afterwards. Nobody wants to happen afterwards. And so um, the plan such that it is in terms of where they put a bunch of people in Gaza, they're talking about creating a buffer zone or a, DM, a DMZ situation. But if that buffer zone or DMZ becomes big enough, well, guess what? You've just committed ethnic cleansing because you've removed a million, a million 1.1 million people to southern Gaza or in some cases even suspect... Uh, you know, let's say you kill 10, 20,000 people. At what point does that become, you know, it's its own form of kind of, uh, and you starve them to death. They die of preventive medical problems. You're looking at 10,000, 15, 20,000 people in a population of 2.3 million. And you, and you expel the rest to the very southern tip of Gaza, which is basically a desert. Is that, you know, and you call it a buffer zone. Is that ethnic cleansing? I think it is. And I think a lot of people in the media are hesitant to use these terms because they're viewed as being too charged or too loaded or too provocative. Um, but I don't, and at a certain point, when you talk about, you know, a, ma- a mass evacuation order, which is impossible, by the way, of 1.1 million people into a southern tip of a country that certainly looks like you're trying to either expel them out of the country or you're trying to put them in some sort of tent, tent cities at the very end of the country to put pressure on Egypt to allow them in and then spin that as a humanitarian quarter. So you have many pieces, of course, you have the language, the sort of genocidal rhetoric about human animals. Um, you have many red flags here. And I think that um, in terms of formulating what the end game is, we, we have incentive to be more paranoid about what those red flags are, because if we're not, what? because again, people want to be conservative, they don't want to hyperbolic, they don't want to say, you know, it's just this. But the problem is that when you have the smoking gun, it's too late. And 
when they're not being open about what their actual plan or strategy is, that's even more reason to be suspect. So, you know, I think one has to balance being sober with with understanding that in in the event that they actually are trying to expel Gaza, you know, uh, uh, Palestinians from Gaza or or to sort of push them against some bottom rung of Gaza in order to create a, a buffer zone or maybe even annex it for settlement. Um, you know, that's 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 a couple dozen war crimes right there, and uh, we should we should be somewhat um, worried about that. I think. My final question for you, Adam: Are you yeah. as shocked as I am at the ease with which? Uh, people are reacting to what is a genocide. Like the fact that virtually it's virtually unanimous in DC with maybe 10 voices that speak up against it. Um, and I, like you said, the polling among regular people is definitely way better, but also we're all just kind of sitting here casually, passively watching it happen, feeling like totally impotent to do anything to stop it. Are you as shocked as I am that like the facts on the ground can be as stark as they are without eliciting sort of a morally outraged uh, response in a good direction from at least Democrats in Washington, D.C.? Um, shock, shocked, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm sort of, I, I think, I think, I think there's a, there's, this is sort of cognitive dissidence 101. We can't be the supporters of genocide. It's impossible. Only Russia is, only China is, only the baddies are. Even the Saudis are, but we sort of passively acquiesce. Um, but the U.S. and Israel, which is, again, a, a kind of viewed as a more Western, white-coated, for want of a better term, country, it's sort of, they by definition cannot do genocide because they're like me. And the baddies do genocide. Um, you know, maybe 70 years ago, one white guy did it. But uh, but ever ever since the sort of end of World War II, we've, we've been off the, the list of people who can do genocide. Um, and I think that there's 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 a cognizance that you know Joe Biden he's he's Uncle Joe he's in the Onion you know parodies and he's he's was on Thirty Rock and he's one you know he's our buddy and he's Uncle Joe and he tells stories about corn pop and I it, you know there we we can't most people don't want to view themselves as supporting someone voting for someone funding for someone uh, or you know being casual going to RFK dinners with you know Ken Burns and Tom and Tom Hanks and and there's a sort of milieu of like he's he's one of ours. Uh, and we don't want to, we can't comprehend that maybe one of ours would in fact co-sign and support the G word, genocide. It doesn't register. And so therefore you have to begin to reverse engineer um, justifications for why it isn't that and why, 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 why the leftists are just being hyperbolic and why it's actually more, you know, more complicated. It's been going for thousands of years. Israel's right to defend itself. All these kind of brain dead cliches people say to not have to address the central issues of what are, you know, the central hor horrific tragedy of what's going on. Um, and that is, you know, a kind of America, it's, a, it's an extent, just another extension of Western and American chauvinism. It's a belief that we don't do these bad things by definition. It's sort of like, I remember to the early, uh, it's obviously not as bad, but in the early kind of debates around what was fake news and what wasn't fake news, people would like pretty much openly say like, oh, well, like American media can't be fake news by definition. Right. And all I can it can only be other countries. And it's like, well, well wait, why? Like, that, you know, there has to be a definition that isn't circular or based on kind of uh, chauvinist assertions of, of inherent moral superiority. And so I think you see a lot of that. It's, it's nobody wants to sort of view themselves as being a party to that and their party to be a part of that. Because again, in, in three to six months, a lot of these people in Congress, uh, you know, I don't want to pick anyone out in particular, but who are calling this ethnic cleansing or genocide or talk, talking about a potential genocide, right? Sort of maybe a more... Uh, a more conservative way of putting it, they're going to turn around and say, you need to vote for Joe Biden. 
They're going to say, you need to go vote for this guy who I just accused of co-signing genocide or, or potential genocide or ethnic cleansing. And that's like really awkward because, you know, we want to be excited about politicians. In the Iraq thing, you know, voting for that Iraq war, that's a little more passive, right? That was kind of like, ah, everyone did it. You know, we were high off 9-11. But this is like more obvious, I think more manifest, obviously much more urgent, more recent. And uh, it's going to be awkward and people don't want to do that. So it's easier to sort of say, piff, piff. You know, it's just those hyperbolic leftists um, I, they don't want to address the substance of the claims. Uh, there was an article yesterday, I forget his, what's the guy's name. He's one of these partisan media hacks. I can't even remember his name. And it was like, it's not a genocide. And his, and his, and his, and his justification was basically, you know, you know, in Liar Liar, when he says, uh, the movie with, with Jim Carrey, where he says, objection, your honor. And he says, on what grounds? And he goes, because it's devastating to my case. It was like, <laughs> that's exactly what he did. It was like, objection. And they're like, okay, well, what's, why, why is it not genocide? And he's like, because it's bad for Democrats. And it's like, well, okay. Um, that's not a very morally compelling argument. Um, and that's kind of what you're seeing now. You're seeing objection, Your Honor, on what grounds? Because it's devastating my case. Because it looks makes me look bad. Because I have, I've invested so much personally, professionally, emotionally, ideologically, financially into this Democratic Party system that if it looks like the head of that system is doing a war crime or half a dozen war crimes, that's something I my brain can't comprehend. And so I therefore, instead of fixing the war crime problem, right? Because again, a lot of this can be, if not, not not made right. It can be made way less bad if Biden tomorrow came out and supported a ceasefire publicly and got a bunch of senators on board to do so, right? This could be this could be stopped if they wanted it to stop. They could they could stop it by doing the right thing. But instead it's going to be doing is it bigger than a bread box with body counts and the definition of genocide, right? Sort of trying to muddy the waters, negotiate away. Um uh, tell uh, scold voters, tell them they're crazy. Tell do the whole Trump is worse thing, which I guess they're going to go door to door in Dearborn, Michigan, and say, "Well, Trump's worse," and it's like, mm, "Okay, uh, I didn't plan on voting for Trump, so I'm not sure why you're telling me that." Um, and then that's the strategy because it's easier; it, it doesn't require them to re-examine their priors or to sort of take any professional or financial risks. Um, and so that's why I mean that's why they're they're justifying this because I mean, what, what else are you going to do? I mean, you have to, otherwise your whole worldview is like shaken and that's bad and nobody wants to do that. Well, there, there you have it. Adam Johnson, thank you so much for joining us, man. I highly recommended Citations Needed podcast. Everybody check it out. And you said you have an article dropping in the nation tomorrow or today? Friday. It's, Friday, it's about, that's it's today about, for it's when about, this drops, right? Right, I think it should be hopefully around the same time. Um, and it's about like the four main talking points against the ceasefire, uh, many of which we covered today and why they're bullshit and don't really make any sense. Very important, guys. Make sure you check it out. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, man. We appreciate it. Thanks, Thank Adam. Thank you for having me. All right. So that was Adam Johnson of the Citations Needed podcast. Uh, it's a really good podcast, by the way. They really, um, they're like media critics and they yeah. do it in a very high-minded way, thorough. I would mm -hmm. say. Yeah, it's very thorough, as you can tell. Um yeah, man. I mean, every day I wake up, I look at these headlines, I read the articles about what's going on, I see what's floating around Twitter, and it's just, it's, I've never seen anything like this. I'm not trying to downplay uh, the war on terror and what we did in Iraq and what we did in Afghanistan and all that stuff, but the scope and scale and how uh, fast this is being done. And the, the undeniability and the just... I know. And people are it. still I mean, denying it. can't. They're still denying it. I know. I, I genuinely have a hard time... And Adam brought this up a, a few times too, like, and then for Bernie to go out there and be like, give humanitarian speech, pause, humanitarian, humanitarian pause. pause that literally at part of what that entails is you can go back to bombing. 
pause. A hundred percent. Like Bernie, what do you like? He's harder on U.S. foreign policy than he is on what Israel's doing right and now. And you've got you've got eighty percent of Democrat, like regular ass MSNBC watching yeah. lib normie. Yeah, Democrats like oh, this should like, stop. We should stop this. Should this. Stop. Yeah, and our lefty supposedly anti-war senator can't bring himself to say fail. that. Fail. I Shout just, out to the 10 uh, Democrats in the House who did the right thing. Nine Democrats nine, in the House. Because let me tell Republican. you what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. The Israel lobby is going to flood opponents of theirs with money. And some of them are genuinely at risk. I mean, yes. Summer Lee and Jamal Bowman in particular. And both of them, I think, I know Summer Lee did, but I think both of them have faced money in the past um, around, you know, from this Democratic Majority for Israel group. Um, and Summer Lee, she had been massively ahead in her congressional campaign in, in the primary. And then they, they flooded, flooded the, the zone. zone. Yep. And mm-hmm. she barely won. Yep. So for she is taking a hell of a lot of political risk. Jamal Bowman taking a hell of a lot of political risk doing the right thing. And damn, I applaud them for it. Yeah, they're they're. It's a huge. Imagine this, Crystal. It's a huge risk to state the obvious and say, hey, stop bombing babies. That's about, a huge risk. How about, but it is. That's the crazy part. How about they're trying to censure Rashida Tlaib? For the crime of being Palestinian. Yes. Right. The you know, that's really what it is. American yeah. in Congress. Mm-hmm. And they want to censure her while they're ethnically cleansing. Genocide. And you know what they say, right? They lie and they go, she supports Hamas. Which is she literally has never said anything like that. They just have to lie to make, make the up. case, just like with all these like in these red states. Now you got Ron DeSantis, who's trying to break up all these pro-Palestinian groups that are on college campuses. He's trying to disband them with force of law. These are the same people who seven and a half minutes ago were screaming about free speech and how they support free speech. Yeah. And how they tar and feather anybody who's pro-Palestine yep. as pro-Hamas and try to break and them up using the force of the state and call them anti-Semitic and all that stuff this is a sick, sick joke. Meanwhile, there are um, conservative right wing whatever groups that are funding billboards of these Harvard students who put out some letter. Doxing them, calling them anti-Semites, putting up billboards, driving trucks around to, you know, shame them eternally and try to blacklist them so they never get hired. And the president of the United States is casually, like, downplaying thousands of deaths among innocent civilians, and you got nothing to say about that. It's just total insanity. Funding and arming the government that is doing this and doing it on purpose. That's right. I mean, I've had it up to here with people who are like, imagine being dumb enough to think Israel's not killing civilians on purpose. Can you imagine being that fucking stupid? To actually sincerely believe that they're not... When they announced a medieval siege on 2.3 million people, they gave away any pretense of we care about civilians and we're being targeted and specific. And we're different than the terrorists because they target civilians. We don't. Right. We're the forces of light and they're the forces of darkness. The moral army on the planet. Okay. Yeah. My ass cheeks. I mean, these people are ridiculous. Anyway, we we can cut the show off now, but that's this topic, man. All right, guys, uh, I love you. Crystal loves you. Mommy and daddy love you. Everybody do us a big favor. Uh, sign up on Substack to support the show. Link below. Um, I don't know if you've seen this on your channel, but I certainly have on Secular Talk. Whenever I do these really long segments breaking down everything that's going on, there's it's usually demonetized. Yeah. And you know, for this podcast, we don't take any money from anybody, corporations, advertisers, etc. You guys fund it all. So if you uh, like our work, please do us a big favor. Um, sign up on Substack. $5 a month gets you the video of every interview and it gets you a day early. You can also sign up for free and get it a day later, usually on Saturdays. And that's all we got for you, man. We'll talk to you next week. Peace. Peace.